I've never been much of a competitive person. I don't care that much about winning in individual games and that kind of thing. But I love competitive sports. I've always had this really deep appreciation. I love them all. They're all, they're all great. I love the basketball, baseball, football, hockey, soccer, lacrosse. I lived in Australia for six months, and I picked up British, obscure British sports like cricket and rugby and Aussie rules football. And I really enjoyed them, really enjoyed this, this use of applying rules to, to competition and see how it, how it plays out. I used to be much more into it. Um, I was an undergrad at the University of Texas and kind of liked their sports teams and so would yell sometimes um, at, at games. It didn't matter what the game was. It didn't matter who we were playing. I felt like that was, it was my prerogative. I had to scream. Um, who else was going to do it except the 30,000 people surrounding me? But, um, <laughs> Even, even one time we went, my father um, and brother and I went to watch UT play Rice in Reliant Stadium. And um, UT was up, I think, like 60 to nothing at one point. And I was still screaming my head off. Every, every catch, every, everything that happened well. But I was, um, I also, my, my cousin was playing for Rice at the time. And he got the, the only score, Rice's only scoring drive started when he was punched in the face. Um, and it was unnecessary roughness. So I was like, yay, Ross, way to go. Way to, way to take that hit. <laughs> I used to, I used to be, be so much more competitive. I rode in the back of the CRV for 15 hours to go watch a basketball game in Denver. Um, CRVs are not very spacious. They're not designed for six-foot individuals, but I did it. Um, I felt like I, I needed to do that. And then, but over the years, that's kind of mellowed. To the point that um, this past year, I've noticed something very unique that when uh, two teams that I really appreciate as a kind of a mild term is like Duke and, um, and the Rockets, and they both lost earlier than I thought. But I was relieved by this. It was like, phew, now I don't have to care about the next games. <laughs> I can just, I guess, relax and just like watch a basketball game. This is great. It's so much more, so much more relaxing. These competitions function in a zero-sum world. It's, the excitement is that somebody has to win. There's, there's going to be, at the end of the match, um, a winner. And so, as, as exemplified and made clear by the great philosopher Tina Turner in, in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, two men enter, one man leaves. That's competition. It's this zero-sum. Yeah, that's the, that's the quote. It's a very strange movie. Um, all competition, though, as well, is a form of politics, because politics is so much more than elections. Politics is how society is organized, how people are organized, how, how it's put together. My friends, we're finishing our series on the Song of Songs, on this strange little poem in the middle of the Bible that is so often skipped over as people are moving from Proverbs to Isaiah and rarely have time to stop. Or it's stopped by, by adolescents who are like, oh my gosh, what's in this Bible? <laughs> but there's something deep here. Something deep about God's love for us. As an early church father wrote, it is the marriage song the Holy Spirit sings at the wedding of the church and Christ. And the love of the song of songs goes really deep. Even to the way we are organized as a society. Politics definitionally has to do with this organization. How is the society organized? How are we organized as a neighborhood, as a community, as a church? How do we resolve conflict? What is our purpose and goal? 
In the United States, pastors aren't supposed to participate in political speech. We run the risk of losing the 501c3 status, but political speech is defined very narrowly, that I can't come up here and say, vote for this candidate. Um, but pretty much anything else I say doesn't count as political speech, according to the IRS. Um, but that's not what politics is. It's a very minimal understanding of that. Politics and religion often function in the same way in polite society. It is something best not to bring up. Um, if you want to have a good Thanksgiving dinner, you don't talk about who you voted for <laughs> or whether your nephew is going to church anymore. <laughs> But this avoidance is a political action in itself. When we decide that there are certain things best left unsaid, we, we elevate them to a level of importance. This often happens as well around money. Money is a subject that is not usually brought up at Thanksgiving dinner. What are you making these days? It's not a really... You know, you, don't really, you're not, you know you're not going to end up with a, with a peaceful meal if that comes up. And so we have these three topics, politics, religion, money, which polite society doesn't talk about in mixed company, but this is radically different than the Jesus and the scriptures and the prophets and the rest of the Bible. Jesus talks about politics and money and religion a lot more than he talks about sex and marriage. The Old Testament is full of one of the most radical economic programs in the history of human society, the Jubilee. The Jubilee, if you don't know about it, because we don't like to talk about it, because nobody really wants to put it into practice because it would mean changing everything. The Jubilee is every 50 years, all debts are forgiven. All of them. And that's what it says in the Torah, that we should be doing that. Usury, the giving of loans for interest, is also banned throughout the Bible. All the way through. In most of society, usury was banned. But society today would crumble if there weren't interest-bearing loans. And so we look at society and we're like, oh, but we can't change that because society would fail. But how are, we, how are we following the faithfulness and the call of Jesus if we're going to bracket this thing off and say, well, this would make our society uncomfortable. So we don't talk about it. Money as well is often seen as a personal reward in life. Not explicitly, but implicitly. implicitly. You get what you deserve. So if you earn a lot of money, obviously you deserved that. And the inverse... If someone doesn't have a lot of money, they obviously deserved not having that money. And it's nobody's business either way. Religion, in the same way religion in the side of, of conversations you don't bring up in polite society, is often sees, seen as an issue of personal preference. That person is, you know, oftentimes Baptist and Methodists are seen in this kind of way. It's like, oh, they kind of like Baptists. Oh, they kind of like Methodists when the, sub, the substance there is not there. And it's discussed in the same way as like a gym membership. It's like, ah, well, this Planet Fitness opened up, and so I think I'm going to try that out for a while and see how that goes. And then so often, a lot of, a lot of times that happen that people leave the church in the same way they leave a gym membership. They just they don't go a few times, and they're like, ah, oh, it's, it's so much getting there, and it's inconvenient. And they question why they began in the first place. This, this, all of this idea, now these are, these are gross characterizations, but it's trying to illustrate a point of the, the ways that we privatize, the ways that we privatize politics, money, religion. We make politics a matter of competing ideas on a neutral field. We make religion a matter of competing ideas on a neutral field that have nothing to say about the truth of reality. Nothing to say about the God of love revealed 
in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that goes so much deeper than a, than a private choice. If these bones are going to rise again, that is not just a personal preference. As Augustine says, when death comes, it is impossible to resist. No matter what arts and medicines are used, no mortal can evade death's violence. But in the same way, the world can do nothing against the violence of love. The violence of love, this is a phrase that Oscar Romero picked up on and preached often in his radio sermons in El Salvador. The consequence of his preaching of love was that he was killed saying mass. A good tree bears good fruit, Jesus says. But good fruit in this world may challenge structures in power. As Herbert McCabe said, if you don't love, you're dead, and if you do, they kill you for it. But we must still seek love and share love because the violence of this world can do nothing against the violence of love. If we are going to seek fruit, we cannot assume where it is going to come from. If we are going to love our neighbor, we cannot avoid the political realities of this world, the spiritual realities of this world. If we're really going to try and love our neighbor, we have to come face to face with some conflicts in this world. Julian of Norwich in the 14th century was, a, um, was an anchorite, and anchorites anchored themselves at different churches. She, we don't actually know what her name was. Um, she was just the anchoress at St. Julian's Church in Norwich. But she wrote in English. She wrote these revelations of love, these showings of divine love in English. And she wrote right after the plague had ravaged the country. One in three people were killed. And that was, that was mostly children, um, mostly those who had already been sick as well. A lot of the priests in England were killed because the priests would go to the sick to give last rites. And then they would get the plague. And so this is a ravaged country, a ravaged world that she is living in, that she is talking about God's love in the midst of this ravaged place. Most of us know Julia of Norwich for the end of the showings where she says, and all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. But she's writing this in the midst of a plague-ridden country. She's writing this in the language of the poor and not the language of the elite. Julian as a teacher of mine wrote, Julian saw a Jesus who did not parcel himself out, though, according to the strict hierarchy of England, but who is grace itself. In the midst of this trauma, she saw a Jesus who is grace. Profligate grace, giving life and making each human life real and good. Real and good. A free grace offered to all, not offered just to the elite, not offered to those in the, in the clergy, but to all. Free grace challenges power. It really does. When you think to the heart of free grace, it challenges power and is an act of politics because if you do not need the government to save you anymore, if you do not need your boss to save you anymore, then you do not have as much to fear. They don't have the power over you. When we live, when we live into this life of practical atheism where we think we need to get to a certain status in life to be saved, and God is the secondary thing, then the power of the authorities in our life is paramount. But when we realize that we are loved apart from those structures, when we are loved and forgiven apart from those structures, we are free. Grace in the midst of this world of death, though, is not easy to believe in. The fear of death 
maintains existing power structures, no matter how just or unjust, though. But if Oscar Romero feared death, he would not preach about love in the midst of the Salvadorian civil war. And the love he preached was not the Hallmark greeting cards kind of love. And it's really important to say that Hallmark saccharine kind of love works fine in a totalitarian state. That the death squad members still gave Hallmark cards to their wives. And I think we need, like, this, this is not the love that the Song of Songs is talking about. This is not the love that Jesus is talking about. A love that challenges the powers of death. That challenges those powers of authority. As both Augustine and Julian point to that challenges the status quo of the world. In Julian's time, clothes and language were integral to the functioning of society. It would be illegal to wear a rich person's clothes. And so rich people wore these elaborate, elaborate gowns and spoke in French. And so you could definitely know who, was, who you were talking to and what class they were in. And the clergy wore their own clergy gowns and spoke in Latin. And that was the other level. And then the poor wore mud and spoke English. <laughs> uh, and though you were not. And so if a poor person put on a, a suit of armor or a gown, a lady's gown, they could be thrown in jail just for that. That's how much the class structure Function And the benefits of society flowed down from the top to the bottom. And most of the benefits went to the aristocrats, speaking French. And then it went to the, the Latin speakers. And finally, whatever was left was to the poor. And yet Julian wrote in English. The first woman to write in English, to, to, to have it printed and shared in English. She wrote that grace is free for all. And that every life is good. And the goal in life is not to move from one class to the other. The goal in life is to share the love of Jesus. The point of life is not to avoid being poor. The point of life is the love of God which is stronger than death. And this gets us to this passage from the Song of Songs that shows us that love is stronger than death. Set me as a seal over your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Passionate love, unrelenting as the grave. What is a seal? A seal is offered in letters between people to make sure that the contents are private. The seal marks authenticity. Different commentators throughout the centuries have understood the seal differently. The Venerable Bede from England as well said this. We set him as a seal upon our heart when we study the things Jesus said, as though they were truly the words of God. And we set him as a seal upon our arm when we hasten to hear the things he did and follow them and do those things. If we are hastening to hear about the things of Jesus, we cannot assume a zero-sum nature in this world. We cannot see life as a competition. We cannot live so as to keep up with the Joneses if what Jesus said is true. We must receive grace without thinking that we have earned it. We must receive grace without thinking that we are better than those people, without thinking that at least we're not as bad as those people or as misled as those people. We must receive grace and then continually reset that seal upon our heart. Reset that seal upon our arms by not falling for the temptations of, of competing with others in this world, of competing with our children, with our jobs, with our houses, with the books we read, with the sports teams we support, of not falling for that trap. We cannot defeat each other, principally because we are not enemies. We're not enemies, and the world wants to tell us that we're enemies, that we have all these enemies, and God's grace shines down and says, no, do not fight for each other. Manna is offered to all. The politics of Jesus is radical because it does not see an enemy in our neighbor. 
It is not good guys versus bad guys. That's one of my teachers wrote. As Christians, we are committed to the view that justice is possible between people because trust is finally a deeper reality in our lives than distrust. Because God's justice is more profound than injustice. Such a view is not an unrealistic, idealistic, or utopian strategy. It is built on the profoundly realistic hope that God, not man, rule this world. The seal upon our heart and upon our arms as well means not being satisfied with injustice when we see it. And think, oh, that's just the way of the world. When we excuse injustice, we avoid grace in our life. God's love is non-competitive. The world is. But the non-competitive, fully gratuitous love of God cannot be defeated by even death. And none of the injustice and brokenness in this world will ever have the final word if we believe in God's grace. We must not live in fear. We must not live on the things we have done. We must not deceive ourselves into thinking we have earned any salvation or any good things in life. We must instead, as another teacher of mine wrote in regards to the Song of Songs, become as nothing before love's delights. It is the only way to become something, to respond to the caress of God, to respond to the gift of God, that you are loved, that you are truly loved. To return the caress of Jesus for us is to do the things of God. Whether the world smiles upon them or not. To love our neighbor even when they are not the right kind of neighbor. To visit the imprisoned even when they are not the right kind of prisoner. Jesus never differentiates between the righteous poor and the unrighteous poor. He never asks if one is going to spend money on wine or not. When he offers them bread or he offers to heal them. None of us deserve the free grace of God. And none of us deserve to be hungry. None of us deserve to be sick. That is not what anyone has earned in this life. The love that sets its seal on us forces us to look with freedom at the brokenness of this world and to say that it is broken and to respond by doing justice, by loving mercy, no matter the consequences, because our faith is not in the consequences that may happen but the loving fire that rushing waters cannot put out, that the floods cannot wash away. Step into this freedom by not being satisfied in the way of the world. The status quo is maintained because people are afraid of death or afraid of being poor, and grace addresses both of these because we see that death has been defeated. And in the words of Jesus and St. Luke in this passage from, from Luke 6 a little earlier, blessed are the poor. And if the poor are blessed, then we should not fear being among them because that is where the blessings of God may be found. What is the fruit that we are to find? Is it the fruit of the violence of death or the violence of love? May we be a people willing to set a seal of love upon our hearts and upon our arms. May we live this love song of Christ in the church. May we step out boldly in the freedom God offers us, not to be satisfied in ourselves, but to offer ourselves for others. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.